0: China, the lawyer accused of drumming up false abuse claims against British troops in Iraq has been struck off. In Afghanistan, the Taliban is in disarray. Is this a good time for peace? The Royal Navy leads the combined naval task force in the Gulf for the first time and Trump's defence secretary starts work in the Far East. A controversial human rights lawyer has been struck off after being found to have acted dishonestly in bringing murder and torture claims against British soldiers who served in Iraq. Phil Shiner had 12 charges of misconduct proved against him by the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal. Charlotte Banks was there for BFBS SITREP.
1: Professor Phil Shiner was charged with 24 counts of misconduct in relation to claims against British troops during the Iraq War. Now a Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal has found 12 charges of misconduct approved, including five allegations of dishonesty. Professor Shiner had already admitted nine counts of acting without integrity and one of acting recklessly. Among the allegations, China acted without integrity by paying a middleman to scout out clients in Iraq to make false claims against British soldiers' actions during the notorious Battle of Danny Boy, which eventually led to the multi-million pound Al-Swidi inquiry. The hearing heard China paid a fixer £500 for each person he could find with allegations against British troops and how the fixer went knocking on doors in Iraq to drum up business. China also improperly authorised payments to persuade the fixer to change his evidence about how the clients at the al-Swidi inquiry were identified. The tribunal also found China had acted recklessly when at a press conference in 2008, he endorsed allegations that the British army had killed and tortured Iraqi civilians at the Battle of Danny Boy. The tribunal panel concluded Professor Shiner should be struck off for his conduct and ordered him to pay £250,000 interim costs. Charlotte Banks for BFBS in London.
0: The Defence Secretary, Sir Michael Fallon, welcomed the outcome of the case. I'm delighted as a result of the evidence that we put in that
2: he's now been exposed for so many false allegations. He's made soldiers' lives a misery over the last uh, few years. I think the decent thing now would be for him to apologise properly to all those troops and their families who he falsely accused. Well,
0: General Sir Mike Jackson was the head of the army at the time of the Iraqi battle, which became the centre of the al sweedy investigation, in which Mr Shiner was a lead solicitor.
3: The amount of pain and anxiety this man has burdened soldiers and their families with is outrageous. His own moralizing and now this revelation and confirmation of his flagrant dishonesty, Um, it's a very sad tale indeed.
0: Colonel James Coote was a major stationed in Basra, near where the Danny Boy checkpoint was
3: based. We can't turn the clock back, and nothing will undo the decade or so that um, my soldiers, their families, and indeed my family have been through as a result of this investigation. It has been difficult, um, but I feel now that a chapter is certainly behind us, but I think yes there are. Certainly, um, it's been a very harrowing experience.
0: Lieutenant Colonel Chris Parker, who was the former Chief of Staff of 7th Armoured Division, or the Desert Rats, has also spoken.
4: The government needs to look carefully at whether 30-odd million pounds being spent on an inquiry now seems bogus. Um, Some of that money at least should be recovered somehow, and if necessary, uh, action could be taken to compensate those whose lives have been affected.
0: The former army officer turned Conservative MP, Johnny Mercer, led a Commons Defence Committee inquiry into the treatment of British troops accused of historical abuse. He says other cases will follow. He's been speaking to our reporter, Rebecca Ricks.
5: I think that um, Phil Shiner getting struck off was inevitable. I think that the way he has conducted himself has been appalling. Um, And I think that a whole generation of the military, my generation, have suffered as a result of it.
6: From your contact with military personnel, how much damage have these cases done?
5: Um, I mean, the effects of them cannot be underrated, in my view. You know, you've got the personal effects and how it's affected them as individuals, and it's ruined lives. I know families that it's broken up. I know careers that it's stopped. But also, in the eyes of the world, the British military was dressed up as something that it's not. We are a professional, proud army. Um, and yes, in, in the eyes that uh, Phil Shiner would have the world see us through, um, you know, we were essentially on the rampage, which is just a million miles away from the truth.
6: What has it been like for the people who have been investigated?
5: Well, it's been horrific for these guys. You know, their lives have been on hold. Some of these people have been investigated two, three, four times already, and each time they're told, look, this is it, and then it comes up again. It's like a recurring nightmare for them. Um, they haven't had the support there. Um, we haven't been robust enough as a country, as a government, against these sorts of investigations, and uh, and for these individuals, um, their lives have uh, have been torn apart.
6: Do you think, despite the ruling state, these cases have damaged the reputation of the British military in the eyes of the public?
5: Yeah, I think they have because, you know, whether we like it or not, there will be some who believe there is some merit in them, was some merit in them. You know, I don't have to remind you of um, the front uh, cover of the Daily Mirror and the direct effect that had on operations. And uh, and actually, you know, I, I do think that, um, you know, these allegations and so on made our job harder in Iraq. Um, and for me, that's that's awful, you know, that uh, we, we could have allowed this sort of situation to come about where one individual was having this catastrophic effect on on the military.
6: Today's ruling hasn't been about the validity of the cases, but more about Mr Shiner's actions. So where does this leave the IHAT team?
5: Well, I think the IHAT team needs to have a good look at um, his evidence and what he's submitted. Um, I think, uh, you know, the Attorney General and, and we need, you know, the government need to have a look at whether or not we take these, this guy's cases on, you know, he's he's been found guilty of, of what he's been found guilty of today. And and, and that, that is serious stuff, you know. And I think we need to have a conversation if he's paid for evidence, if he's done these things that we know taints evidence and, and, and does not stand up in court. Is there something we can do to get rid of the cases that he brought, which were the vast majority um, of IHAT's work?
6: The British military must be seen to be abiding by the law, not above it. Isn't it right? Every case should be fully investigated.
5: Absolutely. Um, But you've got to make a sound judgment on the evidence that comes forward. Now, if you're getting one line of Arabic that's poorly translated into English that is not signed off, that is totally unaccountable, is that enough evidence to rip apart the fabric of the British army um, to find out? I would suggest it's not where serious allegations have been made. We've got to find out, you know, we've got to find out what's going on. We, we can't go around as an army upholding the rule of law um, and conducting professional operations if if we behave in, in some of the manner that uh, um, that's suggested. But um, look, you know, this is one of my major gripes with the IHAT team is that they've even failed to do that. They haven't even prosecuted an individual of, you know, of, of any of their... Um, claims in any of their stuff and and i think you know it speaks volumes for their effectiveness and people like me and everyone i know who serves in the military wants these people caught and you know we don't need them in our midst, and they should feel the full force of the law but that's not what shine is about and that's not what this is about
6: what about the ministry of defense some british personnel feel the alleged victims in these cases were better supported than the soldiers who were accused should the MOD ensure it offers better support to people in the future?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I've been conducting my inquiry for a year now, and my report uh, my report comes out in a couple of weeks' time. Um, there's no doubt, you know, Phil Shiner exploited the system, but that system was set up by the MOD. And did the MOD then really support the men and women going through that? No, they didn't. Um, and consequently, we have a. Uh, you know quite a significant number of uh, individuals disaffected from their time in service, and these guys have gone and served, on these operations you know where there was you know it was chaos um, and they 've come back and we 've made it ten times worse by allowing this process to mutate into what it became so Yeah, there is culpability on behalf of the MOD.
6: Personnel involved in Northern Ireland now seem to be being investigated regarding historical cases. Do you think the MOD should be stepping in to support people in these cases? Can lessons be learned from the Iraq cases?
5: Absolutely. And in my report, I'll be bringing out some principles that I think every investigation should adhere to. And one of the primary ones is that the MOD's focus is not... On satisfying people like Phil Shiner and the ICC, it's actually on looking after people. And that doesn't cross the line or the threshold between those who have broken the law and absolutely must be prosecuted. But these guys are innocent until proven guilty, like every other citizen in the United Kingdom.
0: Now, a new report suggests the rank-and-file Taliban is in disarray after a decade of fighting in Afghanistan. The paper by the Royal United Services Institute is based on in-depth discussions with well-connected Taliban figures. It was co-authored by Professor Theo Farrell, who joins me now. Good to talk to you, Theo. Uh, Just tell me who these key Taliban figures were and how you conducted the research with them.
7: So these were um, a combination of senior functionaries, uh, military commanders. Um, It included, for instance, two former um, deputy ministers, two former very senior commanders. Uh, And the key thing about them is that they have links into several different groups within the Taliban. And so in a sense, we were taking opinions from because the Taliban contains various networks and groups And we were taking views from most of the major groups within the Taliban.
0: And what did you do? Did you meet them on a
7: one-to-one? So the interviews were conducted over 10 days uh, in a location outside of the region. Um, And we basically shared a residence with these people. Uh, We had groups of two or three arriving for about three days and we shared a residence with them. We did very long interviews over the period.
0: Mm, So you got the chance to eyeball them. Uh, What did you learn from them about the state of the Taliban? And was it any different to what you expected?
7: Uh, Yes, it was was quite a surprise, actually. I mean, as somebody who studied the war very extensively, uh, what what we see in the past two years is that since um, the ISAF mission has ended and Western combat forces have come out of Afghanistan, quite predictably the Taliban have made major gains on the battlefield. And in particular, a key objective of of their campaign has always been to capture a provincial capital, and they've done that twice. I mean, in in the fall of 2015, they captured Khadus, the third largest city, in Afghanistan, and they did it again uh, uh, in 2016. And so th- you would expect as a consequence of this that morale would be very high within the Taliban, but essentially they're just waiting for uh, you know, the last American forces to pull out and for the Afghan security forces to collapse. And what we saw was a very different picture. Uh, and and all, all the interviewees that we spoke with at length revealed, basically told us the same thing, which is, yes, the Taliban have made gains in the battlefield, but these have come at very great cost to the Taliban. And the key thing is that they've been fighting for over a decade and they don't really see how these military gains are going to result in a, in a, in pl- in a political outcome that they're looking for. Uh, so, for instance, they've captured Kunduz, but they're only able to hold it for a week or so before they're pushed out by uh, by Afghan forces. So it's, it's the ability to both the costs of their military campaign, but the ability to actually get a political outcome out of it. Mm. Um, that's, that's causing problems. And you're
0: them. suggesting a fracturing of the Taliban. What's happening? What's going on exactly?
7: Um, well, what's, uh, there's a new emir, uh, uh, Akunzada Habib, Habib Tula. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's not like the previous uh, emir who was very well connected, um, Mullah Mansur, who was very well connected with the fighters, the fighting groups in the field, who was a really canny operator. Um, Akunzada is, uh, is the former head of the religious council, um, and so he, he's not been able to exert his authority uh, over the Taliban. And that's very significant because the Taliban is a collection of various groups and networks. Uh, but they've been held together by a strong ideological doctrine of obedience to the emir. Um, and, and, of course, this goes back to Mullah Omar, uh, the original emir.
0: Mm, and one of the things that you've been writing about in this report is, is that people becoming disaffected are moving over to so-called Islamic State, are being recruited by them. But you're also arguing this is an opportunity for finding some kind of peace. How? And who should be involved in that?
7: Well, I mean, just to be careful, we don't actually argue that disaffected fighters are going over to Islamic State. And, in fact, the evidence oh, suggests... Oh, you're saying
0: that there is a danger of that, aren't you?
7: Um, n- not really, actually. Um, most... The, it's- the Taliban are concerned about it. Uh, but but actually, um, most Islamic- most of the Islamic State in Khairzad are... Um, are a displaced Pakistani Taliban, Tariqi Taliban. But anyway, what, what the argument we make is that um, w- with you know, those parts of the Taliban that are just pretty exhausted from the fighting, uh, that are really looking to see a political uh, solution now, um, that presents an opportunity to reach mm-hmm. out to these groups and to begin a peace dialogue. And the point is that these groups don't see the current Emir who's seen as, w- as, w- as weak and divisive. They don't see that he is the man that's going to deliver a political solution. And so we must find, whereas previously our attempts at peace talks have been dealing directly with the emir and uh um, Mullah Omar through his intermediaries, now what we need to do is, is circumvent the emir and deal directly with, po- with dissenting uh, Taliban groups that are in favour of some kind of peace process. You say we, who? That's a very good question, actually. And, of course, in fact, uh, this has to be the Afghan government, uh, with support from the West, but it has to be led by the Afghan government.
0: Christopher
2: Lee? Um, I mean... The first question is is really, isn't it, is why? Why did Taliban want to do this? Why do they want to talk in the way they're talking at the moment? Is it because they're frustrated? Which leads you to the next part of it, which is, let's say, Mansour. Is that the long term, let's say in five years' time, is that the long term uh, solution to the whole problem of how you bring them together with the Afghan government?
0: professor
7: um, yes Christopher it 's a great question and and the people we spoke with um, you know, what they got across was is exactly that it was a frustration with the situation uh, and look, the point is that and right now, Taliban are killing fellow Afghans and fellow Muslims, uh, and so as previously this was, a, this was a jihad against the Kafir against the, the foreign invader it 's no longer the case. And so what they see is is there's pointless to continue a conflict that's just killing fellow Afghans where there's no political solution. So there's this sense of frustration, absolutely. Uh, uh, And it's precisely because you don't have a a strong leader like um, Mullah Omar, who was, or Mullah Mansour even, it's precisely that we now have a weak leader that we have to find a different way, in fact, um, uh, to reach out to these, these dissenting groups.
0: All right, Professor Theo Farrell from the Royal United Service Institute, thank you very much for joining us.
7: My pleasure
4: with
0: Still to come, the US Defence Secretary is in Korea and Dame Vera Lynn's releasing a new album to mark her 100th birthday. Yes, SITREP. The Royal Navy is leading the Combined Naval Task Force in the Gulf in a major exercise for the first time. Exercise Unified Trident began on Tuesday, shortly after nearby Iran carried out a ballistic missile test. BFBS reporter Simon Newton is on dry land in Bahrain after spending a few days on board the command ship HMS Ocean. Hello, Simon. Just last month, uh, the American ship USS Mahan fired across the bows of an Iranian ship. It's a tricky situation militarily and diplomatically, isn't it?
4: Well, this, of course, is the first exercise since uh, Donald Trump became president. And obviously, we've seen a very different tone towards Iran since uh, uh, that happened. Now, this, this test of this ballistic missile last weekend has stirred things up again. And the incident you mentioned, just to go back to that, was, as you say, in, in January when this uh, this USS Mahan fired on four Iranian fast attack boats which came towards it, didn't stop, and they fired three warning shots uh, across the bows, essentially, of those of those vessels. Now, Mahan incidentally is actually part of the exercise that uh, that I've been out seeing this week. Um, so the timing of it all is very interesting. Um, the exercise is a multinational affair: the UK, US, Australia and uh, France are involved and certainly some of the Middle Eastern press that I was with were focusing on whether this is in some way saber-rattling hmm. by, by the US and its allies and I, I put that question to Commodore Andrew Burns, the officer in charge of this battle group uh, and he denied that was the case, this is what he said.
5: Yeah, this exercise is in no way connected with any of the geopolitical events that are going on in this region and we're operating in international waters yet we know we'll interact with the Iranians because Those waters are adjacent to the territorial waters of Iran and they they are sovereign waters and and we fully expect to to operate
4: in close proximity with them.
0: So, Simon, how many ships are taking part and what are they actually doing?
4: Well, this is a three-day exercise. There's 19 ships involved, as I say, from four countries. It's led by HMS Ocean. Um, The other UK ships involved are HMS Daring, it uh, was a Type 45 destroyer, HMS Chiddingfold, a mine hunter. There's also a French uh, anti-air frigate uh, Forban and an Australian uh, frigate Arunta also involved in this. Um, they're testing what they call, uh, I think in naval uh, terminology, full-spectrum warfare. That's how they deal with attacks from the surface, uh, from the air, how they'd hunt down submarines, uh, and also how they deal with mines, so effectively all the threats that they could possibly face at sea.
0: And, and Simon, the Commodore is the senior officer on this exercise. Is he really in command or are they, the Americans?
4: Well, Andrew Burns is in command of Combined Task Force 50. Now, there's seven of these CTFs, I believe, and, and 50 is really the preeminent of one of those because it's usually the one led by uh, an American aircraft carrier. But there isn't a U.S. carrier in the region at the moment, the USS George HW uh, Bush is en route but hasn't arrived here yet. So this is really the first time a UK officer has commanded CTF 50. So yes, in answer to your question, he's in, he's in charge at sea of this combined task force and all the ships within it. Mm. Uh, there aren't any Americans on board Ocean. Uh, he is in sole command there. However, the reality, of course, is that CTF 50 comes under the command of the US Navy's Fifth Fleet, uh, based here in Bahrain, and in turn NAVCENT, Navy Central Command. So. If you go up the chain, certainly the U.S. calls the shots. But what the Royal Navy are stressing and have been stressing to me while I've been at sea with them is that looking ahead to when the QE carriers come to this part of the world, this in effect shows that the Brits can integrate into essentially a, a U.S. construct. And if they're needed to, they can take, um, can take the helm.
0: Simon Newton in Bahrain. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Christopher, um... The Brits can take the helm.
2: Well, I tell you, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, what they're doing there is, in fact, what the Royal Navy, in many ways, is, as, a, as a, a NATO force, has been doing for 45 years. Um, Organisations called Stand For, Stanford Storm, Stand For uh, uh, Atlant in you know, the Standing Naval Force. Channel staying, Standing Naval Force Atlantic and when you look at the construction you've got what they're now calling uh, full spectrum warfare, it's exactly the sort of thing that Navy's been doing rather successfully carrier, amphibious so uh, a p- a piece of cake, MCMVs what? Piece of cake then if you could put it in commander, something like, yeah, the Commodore, a, a piece of cape, because he, so for, probably since the first day he was an acting probationary sub-lieutenant, he has been thinking this sort of thing through. And now he's doing it, and he's, he's helping the Americans out.
0: What's the kind of thing that can be learned from this?
2: Uh, what you do is, is operate, we would say about seven, seven different uh, uh, countries. Do you operate in the same language? Can you, for example, it's a very simple thing. Can you refuel from one ship to another because you've got the same sort of fittings on the, on the main deck? Which, in, in fact, in the case of some of the European navies, that's not, not, not at all the case. Can you refuel? Do you have the, can you operate in the same language, on the same uh, aerial frequencies, the, the same uh, air defence uh, frequencies? Mm-hmm. And when you've got the Type 45 in there, HMS Daring at the moment, have you got, because you'll be the main air defence vessel, close to Iran, don't forget... Uh, have you got the same frequencies that yeah. you can actually detect and then relay that information to, say, an American or an Australian or whatever. Let's, it's an Australian let it, ship, let, you can.
0: Let's bring in an American now. Uh, let's talk to Professor of Political Science at the University of Southern Utah, Michael Stathis. Uh, good to speak to you today, uh, Michael. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Iran, because President Obama, or the former President Obama, got a deal with Iran that they wouldn't build nuclear warheads. President Trump's, Trump has suggested he might scrap it. And a few ga- days ago, we saw this, this test of a medium-range missile. Where do we go from here?
3: Well, number number one, a distinction has to be made uh, concerning uh, both agreements uh, about nuclear weapons on the one hand and missile development uh, on the other. Uh, the uh, agreement that uh, was reached concerning nuclear weapons uh, did not necessarily have much to do with, uh, with, with the other. But uh, that seems to be uh, uh, something that is confusing the current uh, uh, president of the United States. Uh, he, uh, uh, Well, uh, his national security uh, uh, advisor, Michael Flynn, um, gave a very terse comment uh, about the missile situation, um, uh, making a dramatic statement, uh, Iran is on notice. Uh, Mm. at this point. Uh, On notice uh, of of
0: what exactly, do you think?
3: Well, they're they're making a connection uh, between uh, that missile test uh, and uh, the the nuclear agreement. And the suggestion, of course, is one that uh, uh, most people don't want to hear, and that is that this is an excuse uh, to uh, uh, impose more sanctions and perhaps put pressure on um, uh, getting out of the, uh, uh, the, the nuclear agreement uh, unilaterally, which uh, is ill-advised. And uh, in fact, oddly enough, some of the people that Trump has ad- uh, appointed to his new cabinet uh, are advising to leave the nuclear agreement alone. Mm. Uh, don't bring that into the argument. Uh, this isn't the time.
2: Lee. It's, it's not just Washington either. If you happen to be in the region of of Iran and in the range of a missile which is tested, Israel, and, for
0: example, Israel,
2: for example, and you're you're in that range, you're you're worried now. On Monday at 11 o'clock, round about 11 o'clock, uh, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu of Israel is going to be in Downing Street, and he is his people and places like the Jerusalem Post are running long articles about this and saying we are threatened. And if we are threatened, you have to risk the idea that we might do something about it. Now, Mm. we've heard it for ages and ages, but one day they sort of might. And he is going to be impressing on Mrs May on Monday, so they say, to have it out with with, uh, President Trump and make him realize that the Israelis are not... Uh, I'm not joking about this. And then, in about three weeks' time, he goes to New York, and he, uh, to Washington, and he will tell the same mm. thing.
0: Let, let's head off to the, the Far East now, because uh, Trump's Defence Secretary, James Mathis, Mattis, is there. It's a show of solidarity, but just as with NATO, Trump is saying that the two main allies, Japan and South Korea, have to pay more for their defence. Here he is speaking to reporters on board his military flight from Washington to the South Korean capital, Seoul.
3: North Korea is often acted in in a provocative way. It's hard to anticipate what they do. One of the reasons I want to come out and talk to the leadership out here, they live in the neighbourhood. They watch this as an existential threat to them. And I need to get some data from them. I need to get their appreciation of the situation.
0: Uh, Now, Michael, General Mattis wants to spend more on defence. Is this an issue with the public? Do they mind spending more on defence at a time when the economy isn't particularly good?
3: Well, we have to look at uh, at this from the uh, perspective of post-election politics. The people who put uh, uh, Trump in office uh, are very much in favor of uh, dramatic new military spending and a uh, revamping of the american military which uh, remains the greatest military in the world uh, uh, before uh, that uh, that kind of that kind of action the the trip to uh, 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 the far east is interesting because uh, the Secretary of Defense made it, which uh, puts an odd slant on it and maybe upset some people, uh, thinking that, uh, well, because he's the Secretary of Defense, that uh, uh, Mattis uh, uh, is going to speak in strictly military terms. But I think part of the reason that he went uh, is uh, because the uh, uh, prospective Secretary of State, uh, Turnbull, uh, or not Turnbull, um, uh... was uh... uh, basically hadn't been confirmed yet and uh... he um, uh... is uh... actually was confirmed and was introduced as a new secretary of state uh... yesterday uh... in the late afternoon and uh... and, and the evening And uh, uh, I think that he's going to suddenly find himself traveling as well. Mm. But the the issue, of course, surrounds uh, the saber-rattling of uh, uh, Kim Jong-un, and um, there is a great deal of concern in South Korea and Japan, and uh, uh, hopefully uh, the trip by Mattis will uh, send both a message to Pyongyang uh, and hope to give a little bit of confidence uh, to, uh, to mm. uh, South Korea and, uh, and and to Japan. But uh, to be clear. It has been a very uneasy two weeks, uh, both in terms of discussions concerning foreign policy and certainly domestic policy in this country.
0: All right. Professor Michael Stathis from the University of Southern Utah. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. Um, Christopher, before we go today, uh, we should mention, mention that the original Forces sweetheart, Dame Vera Lynn, will celebrate her 100th birthday next month, and she's releasing a new album.
2: Yeah, a new old
0: album, a reworked album. Uh, well, I don't know what well, exactly. It's more than that. Go on. Uh,
2: it, okay, a hundred years, and it'll have the great songs, including the one she liked most of all: "We'll Meet Again," "Bluebirds Over the White Cliffs of Dover," wartime songs, "Held a Nation Together," etc. Um, but what she's doing is she's doing duets with famous singers, uh, and that's that,
0: Alfie Bow you know, Bo is one of them. Well, Alfie <laughs> Bow is
2: one, and I, I rather approve that. But a lot of things people don't remember. Do you remember uh, Rod Stewart sailing that he sang in Ark mm. Royal? It had to be. She did that, and in, in the States, she got into the charts. Because these are, with, with these are digital uh, recordings that are aren't re, like being reused. Re, uh, yeah? re, 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 remastering. Mm-hmm. Can I just mention one other singer, though? Go on. She wasn't the only Forces, sweetheart. The Navy liked... A singer called Anne Shelton, oh. which uh, uh, Mike Reid said was a better singer. Ooh. Can't Contro- say better than that.
0: Controversial. <laughs> That's all we have time for today, My Thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS Sit Rep. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS Sit Rep. So, from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. I'll speak to you this time next week. Bye bye for now.
7: Of British news, sport, and entertainment for the British forces
3: overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2.